Hello and welcome to The Premise. Bienvenidos, mi amigos. I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And this is, what, season three? Season three. Wow. We are in season three of getting to the story behind the storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do here on The Premise. So sit back, relax. Listen. Listen to your eight tracks. I dig you like an old soul record. <laughs> Enjoy a cup of tea, a glass of wine, a shot, you know, whatever. And you do you. You do you. We'll do us. No judgment here. We'll do us. <laughs> Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to The Premise. So I'm here with Chad, of course. Say hi, Chad. Hi, Chad. Very good. Very nice. You listen. He does that. He also does a great job of making sure we sound good. And today we have the wonderful, amazing, and well-known Jane Friedman. Welcome. Hello. It's great to be here. And you sound great, Jane. Excellent. <laughs> That's not my doing, by the way. <laughs> it's not? Oh, I was totally going to give you credit, Chad. So Jane Friedman has 20 years of experience in the publishing industry with expertise in business strategy for authors and publishers. She's the editor of The Hot Sheet, the essential industry newsletter for authors, and has previously worked for Writer's Digest and the Virginia Quarterly Review. In 2019, Jane was awarded Publishing Commentator of the Year by Digital Book World, her newsletter was awarded Media Outlet of the Year in 2020. Jane's latest book is The Business of Being a Writer, which received a starred review from Library Journal. Publishers Weekly said that it is destined to become a staple reference book for writers and those interested in publishing careers. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. In addition to being a professor with the great courses, Jane's expertise has been featured by the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, and many other outlets. She also offers a free, new, free newsletter called The Electric Speed. So again, Jane, welcome to The Premise. Thank you very much. I'm so glad you're here. Where are you, where are you talking to us from today? Cincinnati, Ohio. Awesome. How's the weather in Cincinnati? Uh, hot and humid. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> well, it is summer. It is summer. I guess it is. How did the summer go by so fast? Well, I mean, for me, it's almost over. I, f I swear tomorrow's <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> I'm just going to skip right past Thanksgiving. Right? Yeah, I guess so. So I have never been to Cincinnati, Ohio. That's like one of the few places on the map I haven't been. And you grew up there, right? Uh, I'm originally from southern Indiana, but I did spend 15 years in Cincinnati. I actually just came back after a 10-year absence. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia until oh. just uh, this past April. So... I'm oh, nice. very happy to be back in the Midwest. Very cool. Chad's a Midwestern boy. Welcome back <laughs> to that same old place that you started from. Or not really. but Not really, but know. close. Yeah, yeah. I've always wanted to go to Cincinnati, actually. I think it's because of WKRP in Cincinnati. It uh -huh. just has this, like, you know, my mind's like, oh, I have to go there. <laughs> I think it is a underrated city. I think most people don't know the vibrance that's here it's it's really lovely and chad's from iowa he's from the midwest as well so i know about those hot days those humid days in the midwest but i think they're really kind of awesome especially in iowa smelling the corn it's like you're walking through this this heat but it has personality this denseness 
I, I never looked at it that way when I grew up there. <laughs> I was only there for a Good couple Lord. weeks. <laughs> Personality? <laughs> yeah, like it, totally. Like where I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, it was kind of dry, right? And so like walking through weather that you can really f- feel but can't see and like rain and snow and right. It's like this humid. I felt like I could cut the air with a butter knife. Yeah, probably so. But that that's because <laughs> you weren't downwind of the hog farm. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. There's probably no hog farms in Cincinnati though. Well, it is um it is the city where pigs fly. I don't don't know if you realize a pig is basically the mascot of the city. Oh, so there's got to be at least a slaughterhouse or two there. Mm, there used to be. I don't know that there is anymore. Is is that why the pig is the um, mascot of the city? Yes. A lot of pig farming. I love pigs. I had two pigs when I was a kid named Porgy and Bess. My dad named them. Aww. Not us. <laughs> For all you Gershwin fans. Okay, let's get down to the serious question. Jane, how did you do on today's Wordle? <laughs> I told you this was a hardball interview. <laughs> I have to admit that I stopped doing Wordle many months ago. Even you, my even my husband stopped, and he's a, a word game player every single day. Because okay. they sold out to the New York Times. Uh, you were there at the beginning. <laughs> I, yeah, well, it wasn't a sold out thing. It was just like I I don't know. I'm just not into it. <laughs> well, I thought for sure that one I was going to get a good answer out of that. So my bad. Why did you stop during doing Wordle? Um. I, I just prefer other games. I like uh, the game I play every day is Carcassonne. It's a tile laying game. I have the app on my iPad. So that I like strategy games. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I, I hear you. I see. I hear where you're coming from. Well, let's get down to the business of publishing. So you're a business strategist and a writer. Which came first? <laughs> writer. I think that's that's usually how it works for most folks. Yeah. Yeah, like, so what did you go to college for? Writing. And what did you, where did you see yourself in the future? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? I grew up in a really small rural town with the cornfields. And there wasn't a whole lot to do other than read or write. In fact, my mother uh, worked at the small library in town. So I, I was always involved in writing and editing activities. And that's, you know, how to put it. I think I probably would have been interested in other things, but for lack of resource or, you know, anything else to do, I ended up in writing and publishing from a mm. very, very young age. So mm. it's, it's always, I've, my life has always gone in that direction and I've barely questioned it. Nice. Yeah. I think if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, I mean, it's kind of cliche, but, you know, you enjoy it. Like if we do our passion, ultimately, we're going to be happy in life. Do you think that's true? I used to believe (laughs) that that that's true. Um, In in my, I would say, early to mid 20s, I was all about what's your passion, what's your passion, follow your passion. And I, I think that was also culturally the message that was being shared and sent out at the time. I couldn't tell you why, I'm not a sociologist. Um, But I started to question that when I got into my 30s, um, not because of personal reasons, but just through witnessing other people, witnessing success, and also just the changing nature of how I felt about my own work. I was taking pleasure in the mastery of it, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and wanting, and also I found I was happier when I had some autonomy. So there are certain values that I think I discovered over time that are more important to me than the passion piece. Hmm. Well, that's very pragmatic of you. (laughs) (laughs) And probably, I mean, when we think about, there's actually something on your website, I'll probably butcher this, but you know, you believe that art and business should not be at odds with each other. Correct. I I think that we've set those two in opposition in Mm. a way that um, it, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I think it's the business people that have set that opposition up. Really? And take advantage of the artists. Mm. <laughs> but I am biased. So Being that. an artist that you are. Yeah, I mean, in writing, you know, publishing in particular is a pretty sticky industry because it does come from the passion of writing. It's solitary, regardless of what kind of writing you do. But to break out and actually make money as a writer is, I mean, really, really difficult what maybe the top five percent of writers actually make money writing solely as writing it's probably not even five percent it's yeah i mean it's just speculation but probably closer to one or less so it's stephen king james patterson (laughs) (laughs) but so going back to, to, to college so i mean how did you break into the business side and and let me ask you this too like when you saw yourself as a writer are we talking creative writing, nonfiction? Where was your heart? Well, I enrolled in a Bachelor of Fine Arts in creative writing. Hmm. And so I started taking the classes that all undergraduates take in poetry and short story writing. Those are kind of the mainstays. Mm -hmm. Then I joined the school paper. Um, Mainly, I was influenced by a friend who was in the journalism program. And I found that form of writing actually really invigorating and energizing and exciting. And so I ended up in parallel pursuing that and Mm. becoming editor of the school paper and pursuing the creative writing on the side. And by the end of it, I realized I had, I really had no business writing fiction. Mm. Um, And poetry was interesting, but not so interesting. I was like going to pursue it as like a full-time career or job. I think they're just personally, I think... It, it just got boring after mm. a while, which is going to be horribly sacrilege. <laughs> like that's the sacrilegious right. statement for some folks. Um, no, but it, I understand where you're coming from, though. Like you know, to to branch out into creative nonfiction. I mean, there's so much you can do with that. There's so much you can open and explore. Yes. So I, I find that the real world is basically more interesting to me than than the fictional ones not that you know and I as as I've grown older you know everything fiction wise and poetry wise has kind of dropped away and mm-hmm. I've, I've focused more and more on the nonfiction end well speaking of embarrassing college poetry <laughs> on your website I, I did read your bio and it says if you look hard her embarrassing, you know, you can find Jane's embarrassing college poetry. And so I love a challenge. And I thought, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to dig and I'm going to see what I can find. I can't wait. And it was really easy to find. It's actually a book on Amazon. It's available for a dollar, dear listeners. It's worth a read. And it's called <laughs> Jane's Embarrassing College Poetry. My favorite is the review. Yeah. Well, that one's on Goodreads, though. Oh, is it? It's on Goodreads. So there's three reviews on Amazon. And there's one review that I read on Goodreads. There might be more. Um, 
I read it to Chad. I'm going to read it to you, dear listener. Jane's already heard it, I'm sure. The title is, It Would I would be very embarrassed. So again, we're talking about a book called Jane's Embarrassing College Poetry. The review is, I would be very embarrassed. And it goes on to say, close to the worst poetry I've ever read. (laughs) Don't waste your dollar. Literally, it's one dollar. I hope Jane has moved on to better her writing and become less judgmental. So my first thought was, did you pay this woman to write that review? <laughs> this sums it up perfectly. It's, it's like, yes, the title says it all. That'll let I'm like, oh, I have to buy it. Oh, my. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> you did know about that review. I did see that review, yes. <laughs> I mean, I would have to frame that, I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I do want to... Sl- Okay, so like I don't want to brag on myself or anything. Um, I, I don't think Do that, that I don't think that collection is anything special. But I did win like three poetry awards in college, and uh, mm-hmm. there's at least one poem in there that won an award that mm. that's in there. I don't remember which one, but I mean it's. I'm still not going to be embarking on a career of poetry. <laughs> you so still it's... moved on, regardless. <laughs> There's one piece in there I, I really enjoyed. It's called The Scribe. Do you, do you remember it enough to talk about it? Um, is that the one about my dad? Yeah. yeah. And that was my question. Like, I loved it so much because it felt really intimate and it felt like a true portrait. I could just see this little girl looking up. Was he a professor, a college professor? No, he was at least, I came into his life very late. He, I, he was 55 when I was born. And by that time, he was essentially retired. He worked primarily as a professional typography, or tra- oh, wow. typographer back cool. when that was a thing. Yeah. And then in his retirement, he pursued calligraphy and sign making full time, but he was a calligrapher his whole life. So he was not uh, professionally trained. He was self-taught and uh, yeah. I love that he went from setting type, something that's very mechanical, to calligraphy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've had a lifetime of this. I'm done. <laughs> Truly. I like the script. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think he saw it all of a piece. I mean, he was concerned with the beauty of of the language and, and the letters themselves. And there's a lot of um, artistry that goes into typesetting mm-hmm. as far as mm-hmm. the spacing in between the lines and in between the letters. And, you know, they it was yeah. layout as art which isn't, you know, today in the world of word processing, I think we don't even register that there are all of these settings working in the background to actually make the document look reasonably good and you never have to adjust them. But typesetters had to. Well, and you probably don't know this about Chad and I, but we're book designers. And so typesetting is... Letting and tracking means something to me, damn it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Chad is more... um, He's more of an artist than I am. So, you know, he feels very strongly about tracking and letting and the space. How did you word it, Chad? It's think of it as how much water fills the space between the letters. Between each of the letters, yeah. And you Mm -hmm. want to make it so that that amount of space is similar Mm. between each of the letters. Yeah. Especially with things like V's and M's and, and, you know. Right, you get an A and a W next to each other and you're like... Or a Y. You're in love, right? Yeah, but then you get... Yeah, exactly. Other letters don't work quite so well, but that's what typographers do is make them work well together. You know, 
in our world, Jane, you know, we deal with a lot of self-published authors, a lot of people who are designing their own books, and people don't realize how much type matters, the feeling of type, the personality. I kind of think of typefaces as shoes that go in and out of style, right? Yes. And we want something that's timeless, but something that grabs attention and has a feeling, and, you know, type does have a feeling. It's I get a little passionate about it. So papyrus for every headline. Yes. <laughs> Everyone should use papyrus. That's not Curls MT. Or Comic Sans, another one. These are our most hated <laughs> fonts. Do you have a font that you hate, Jay? Well, I mean, papyrus is up there. Have you uh, <laughs> Have you seen the SNL skit about oh, Avatar? Oh, yeah, the Avatar. <laughs> yeah. That's my yeah. favorite, favorite skit of all time. Oh, yeah. it's, it's bloody infuriating. You know, someone, <laughs> someone actually took... Uh, comic Sans and, and Papyrus and combined them and made Comic Papyrus. Oh, God. <laughs> and then, then they get sued. Then they got sued by the company that created Papyrus, so he had to change it to, uh, I forget what it's called now. Hmm. But if you just search Comic Papyrus, it's, you'll find, you'll find it. it. <laughs> when I, uh, my husband and I went on a trip uh, to Sedona and um, we started playing a game about how often we could spot Papyrus. Hmm. <laughs> Oh God, that's yeah, it's everywhere. I'm gonna say you're better off just counting the places that don't have it. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, from yogurt to yoga, I did a type study, sort of, I guess, where I did something similar. And every time I'd see it on a sign, a storefront, I'd take a photograph of it so I could show my students. Don't use this font, please, for the love of God. I know it it really draws you in. Such a feeling. And we do have one client right now who insisted on using papyrus. Couldn't talk about it. You know, I mean, but part of the reason that, you know, authors independently publish and self-publish their books is they want more control. And so there is beauty in that, I suppose. For better or worse. Right? Yes. Well, okay. Let's get back to (laughs) your world and publishing. How did you get your start in the the business side of publishing? How did you break in? Well, I landed my first traditional book publishing job as a college student. I got an internship, which then turned into a full-time job once I graduated. And the very first thing I was tasked with doing was researching the market for certain types of books. Hmm. Um, And this was uh, an enthusiast publisher, so they publish a lot of nonfiction that are for very specific enthusiast communities, including actually graphic designers. Um, this was a publisher that did How magazine and ID magazine, and eventually oh, they bought yeah. Print magazine too. <laughs> um, I didn't work for that part of the company, but I I was researching new markets, particularly in the arts and crafts area. And so all of the research that I did ended up as evidence of need in book proposals that I would take to an editorial board, um, you know, trying to get permission to move forward with such and such project. So, I mean, from the very beginning, my job really wasn't editing. It was coming up with projects that would sell. Right. Yeah. And you're known to cross all sections of publishing from traditional to self-publishing. Is that important to you? It is because especially from the author's perspective, I don't think there is one right path or one path that you're necessarily going to be on for the Mm -hmm. entirety of your career. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, I, unfortunately publishing has 
in terms of authorship has become somewhat tribal. Maybe it's always been this way, but certainly the success of self-publishing authors um, since, you know, roughly the early 2010s has created this almost separate industry and it operates with a different business model than traditional Mm. publishing. Mm -hmm. And those authors just snipe at each other so often, or the self-publishing authors think the traditional authors are stupid and the traditional authors think the self-publishers are putting out a lot of crap. There's Mm. just a lot of stereotyping and I don't think it helps anybody. (laughs) It doesn't help move the conversation forward. You know, these communities have a lot that they can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ultimately their interests are the same. You know, I don't, I don't know why there has to be this bickering, but it, you know, it, it happens among uh, different sectors of book publishing as well inside the industry. So it's not just authors. Well, I mean, there's been this fight to sort of break into the gates, if you will. There's been mm-hmm. gatekeepers for publishing for so long, and now all of a sudden, those that gate is being opened slightly, but in a different way. I also think that the self-publishing industry is finally changing the way traditional publishing looks at itself Mm -hmm. and the choices they make. Do you agree? Oh, totally. Yes. And I think, I think it's important and it's valuable. I think traditional publishers have learned, you know, the power, well, I should back up the the power of self-publishers to identify a need like a reader need in the market, a consumer need, mm-hmm. is really, I think it outpaces traditional publishers. Of course, we're talking about a really particular market, like the people who read on Amazon voraciously is mainly what we're discussing here. Sure. That's where most self-published work gets sold. So like, for instance, self-published authors decided we need more stories of women over 40 in protagonist roles. Right. And they yeah. kind of created that genre out of, you know, from scratch. It's called paranormal women's fiction. Mm. And it's a sector that traditional publishers aren't serving. Mm. So, you know, if if there are people acquiring in traditional publishing who pay attention to some of these trends, I think they would see a lot of opportunities for them to get involved. Um, sure. Now, like I said, they are kind of different business models. Like some of this work sells because it's priced very low. Mm-hmm. And some traditional publishers don't go there. But nonetheless, um, it, yes, it, for both sides, there's a lot there's a lot of uh, exchange, wisdom exchange, business exchange that could be happening. Well, and I think we're getting we're getting ready to be there. Like we're getting close, you know, to the, the two sides sort of saying, hmm, there's value in what you're doing. There, there's two things I want to ask you, though. One is, this idea of self-publishing to me, you know, has always been, it's a misnomer. You don't want to do it yourself. So when I think of someone who self-published, I think of someone who did it themselves and usually not very well. I encourage my clients to call it independent publishing. You're independently publishing just as you would an indie movie or indie music. Why not indie books? But then recently I saw an argument, like I wouldn't call it an argument, a conversation on Authors Guild. And I know you're heavily involved in the Authors Guild. But the idea that, you know, self-publishing is calling themselves independent publishers because of independent presses. So there's this like blurred line. There's traditional, there's independent, there's hybrid, there's self-publishing. Where do you stand on all of this? (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly the conversation you're talking about at Authors Guild because I saw that. And um, I've actually had some people, this hasn't been recently, 
angry that the independent name has kind of been stolen away by authors, self-publishing authors, away from independent publishers who are not of the New York big corporate variety. Right, right. And and for me, that it's like, can we not have an argument about semantics? <laughs> I just, I, I don't have a whole lot of patience for like what the what do we call it thing. Mm. Let, let's just as long as we can have clarity, yeah, about what we're talking about. Um, that's all I want. So I don't. I think it's distracting us from bigger, more important issues. Mm, that I, I appreciate that, and I agree with you. And to me, I mean, if you independently publish a book, you have set up a small press, regardless of how many people you publish. If it's just you, you know, someone has designed the cover. You have editors. You know, you've done all the things that a small press would do, and you're not doing it yourself. So you're not self-publishing. So I appreciate your take on that. I think the term self-publishing, for most folks, it's really clear what that means. And for, for me, the definition means you are funding publication of your book, regardless of how that happens. You can hire anyone you want, but it is self-funded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My argument has always been, you know, I've never seen a, a self-movie. I see an indie movie. Indie music. <laughs> I come from the music industry, and I see a lot of parallels and similar things happening in publishing that happened in music. In fact, one thing I'd like to do is take our readers or our listeners to something they can read on your website. I know that you always get asked about the future of publishing, which is kind of an awesome question, but also maybe frustrating because you don't have a magic eight ball or maybe you do but it doesn't tell you the future of publishing so you wrote a satire called the future of publishing enigma variations which by the way i loved and again i think our listeners should should download but it reminded me a lot of the music industry you know one of the things i think it's in chapter eight you talk about cheekily predict that no one will pay for books anymore and that authors will make money from tours events endorsements merchandise and of course my favorite private dinner clubs but I mean, this is exactly what happened to songwriters. Why not book writers? I do think that writers have operated on a variety of business models over time. It's actually only recently, like within the last 100 years, 150 years perhaps, that they could earn a living off book sales alone. Hmm. Um, that kind of coincides with bookstores, actually, and also the fact that there could be a, such a thing as a mass market work with the rise of literacy. It took a long time before authors reached that point in their evolution, if you start back with, let's say, Gutenberg. Um, so before that time, before books became a mass market item, essentially, they had patrons, uh, They or they were just wealthy and privileged. So I think in some ways we're kind of, it's like a back to the future thing. Like we're mm -hmm. seeing patronage come back. We're, and with the internet, we're seeing a lot of new different ways of earning money arise that just couldn't have existed prior. The, the so-called creator economy, um, right. which has pros and cons, of course. I think that it's created a lot of competition. It's created a lot of anxiety because people don't understand, they, like they don't know how, where to enter this creator economy from. They, should I use, should I have patrons? Should I do crowdfunding? Should I give this away for free? Um, like there's so much choice mm. 
it actually puts a lot of pressure, I think, on the average writer to understand something about the economics and business of content, that dreaded word. Um, right, <laughs> uh, right. Which m- meaning I'm not talking about literature anymore. I'm talking about things that can help develop an audience. So, you know, I something that hasn't happened yet for authors or for the book industry which has happened to music is the, the streaming piece mm-hmm. or the like the all you can consume subscription service. And I know that that has been very tough for musicians um, economically. There I see unending arguments about the harm that, you know, Spotify has caused. Um, but so far, publishers have avoided that. Um, print is still strong. And the subscription programs that are very popular like Kindle Unlimited with Amazon, or let's say Storytel, which is very popular in Europe, but hasn't come to the US yet. You know, they, the biggest publishers have refused more or less to participate in those subscription models because they're worried about devaluing books. But I feel like, you know, the clock's running out on that refusal. <laughs> like, I don't know how much longer it can continue. So that's my, I think that's, everyone's a little bit anxious about that potential change and some think it's inevitable. I tend to fall on the inevitable side of things. Hmm. Hmm. I'm, I'm, but I'm not all doom and gloom, but I do hope that, uh, well, we'll call them creators now rather than just authors because they're going to be doing more than just writing. Right. I, I think that uh, it is incumbent upon them to, to guard like external sources of income. Because for musicians in particular, streaming came along and yeah, the large musicians, it took a lot of cash from them and the companies that were publishing their music. So the music publishers then looked for other means to extract money from the musicians. So they started taking a cut of their ticket sales. They started taking a cut of their merch sales. Mm. They started taking cuts from everything else. And I would hate for that to happen to authors. So... If they go into it, go in eyes wide open. But I so, do think it's coming. I mean, so far, the traditional book publishing contract, if I were to compare it to what I know about music contracts, I think it's it's more generous. Not to say that publishers are generous, but they're not. Um, right. <laughs> there is an amount of certain amount of control that the author and the agent retains over how that work gets sold. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, do you think that is a direct result of having an agent? I mean, in publishing, you all authors have to have an agent if they're going to get signed by a big a big house. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's been some protection set in place from the very beginning that maybe didn't happen for musicians. It's possible. I do agents are a pretty strong force in publishing and there are some things where they're just, they just say, there is no way my client is doing that. Mm. (laughs) And and there are lots of clauses and contracts that say, um, you know, should you ever grant better terms to anyone else, you automatically have to give them to us. Now you can't get that into every single author's contract, but certainly the biggest authors have a lot of protections around them. That's interesting, yeah. Well, and we're thinking about, you know, all of the things that come along with a best-selling book, Netflix series, overseas, movies, all of those things, e-books, audio. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, those are, you know, 
for if you're agented, you probably retain those rights for the most part. Um, One would hope, right? Yeah. Not the well, ebook rights, though, but the the merchandising and the you know events and uh, film, TV, etc. There's always this talk, this murmur about the idea of print books going away. And in the last year and a half, we've had a paper shortage. So it kind of adds, you know, we only have so many trees, right? But we have a lot of words. <laughs> this has been one of the great paradoxes of the last few years, um, which is print sales are dramatically increasing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. While the paper supply has dwindled and printers have consolidated, making it a very tight market and making everything more expensive hmm. and you know the the question gets raised whenever there's this industry conversation about the supply chain why aren't publishers doing more to market and promote digital editions where you don't have these supply chain issues um, not to mention some of the climate change issues surrounding all of this and you know one of the one of the problems here is that publishers have really worked themselves into a corner in that print is you know among the most profitable things that they do um, and <laughs> they have priced their ebooks in such a way that makes them look very unattractive when you can get the print copy for about the same price sometimes less mm. so publishers have really put their thumb on the scale in terms of keeping the print market robust um, although part of that is also informed by the fact they don't want to give any more power to Amazon, uh, which is so dominates ebook and audiobook sales in the U.S. Mm. Yeah, the elephant in the room, Amazon. Mm -hmm. Do you have? I mean, I don't have a specific question, but you know, what are your thoughts on Amazon and how it controls both traditional and self-published authors in different ways, albeit? It's tough. Like, I, there's not really anywhere to run to mm -hmm. unless you have a really strong direct-to-consumer connection. Right. Um, so an example of that would be Microcosm in Portland, Oregon, which kind of, you know, planted its flag as anti-Amazon. It's a very counterculture sort of publisher, and you can tell it the se you can tell the second you go to their website what sort of publisher they are, and so they have a very devoted loyal base of people who buy their books and microcosm doesn't need to sell through Amazon or I think their books ultimately end up there because all roads lead to Amazon, whether you like it or not, but microcosm isn't selling directly to them. Amazon has to go run around and get their books from someone else. Hmm. So I think it's possible, but you have to really like it requires to me leveling up with your business strategy. Amazon is like lowest common denominator. Anyone mm -hmm. can, I think anyone can sell there. But if you want to be able to sell in different ways, you, you have to get more advanced. Right, right. Well, and this goes back to author platform, <laughs> building your audience and, you know, having a direct line to your audience, which is required a requirement. If you're going to get signed by a traditional publisher, for the most part, they, they look for platform. And yet, if you want to be an self-published author who is not just selling on Amazon, you need to have an author platform. <laughs> I think with self-published authors, I often suggest it's going to take them until book four, book five, mm -hmm. uh, for them to achieve a foundation that will make it possible to earn a living. There's even like this self-publishing community called 20 Books 
to 50K, which posits once you publish 20 books, you will have a, a, a living of 50,000 a year. Uh, we could argue about that, <laughs> whether that's true or if it's even um, something you would want to do. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I think self-published authors, though, I don't think are as neurotic as traditionally published authors in terms of platform building um, because they often lean on Amazon as delivering their audience to them for better or worse, like through Kindle Unlimited. Um, with mm -hmm. traditionally published authors, it's certainly true that nonfiction folks need to demonstrate visibility and authority and uh, an ability to sell. But I don't think fiction writers or poets and a good deal of memoirists, which I know is nonfiction, but is in a kind of a gray area, you can right. still sell a book without, you know, being online or, mm -hmm. you know, you could have a very modest, modest following, like less than a thousand people. Let's talk about memoir for a minute, because it is an interesting genre in the fact that it needs to read like fiction, mm. <laughs> but it's nonfiction. Correct. I like advising people on memoir to try and position and pitch as if you were pitching a novel, because mm -hmm. I think unless you have a platform, the reason your memoir is going to sell is because of the storytelling itself, um, the premise, uh, whether it just makes us feel like we have to drop everything and see what happens next. Um, I think those authors who are trying to sell it based on a platform reasons are like, oh, there are millions of people who are affected by cancer and they'll enjoy my memoir. Those <laughs> sorts of appeals just tend to fall flat. Hmm. So I like the fiction approach, as you mentioned. What I find interesting about memoir is you always hear, oh, memoir so hard to sell. And yet every time I turn around, I feel like there's a wonderful memoir and memoir is becoming more and more read. Would you agree with that? It's very hard to sell. I think it's being published in the same amount that it's always been. Mm -hmm. But I think there are more people writing it than ever. And I, part of that might just be generational, like the baby, boomer, baby boomers now reflecting mm -hmm. and, and, and writing about those wild and crazy days. And I don't know, it would have been the 60s or 70s. Um, and so I think one of something I run into at conferences and classes, you tend to get the same sort of person and the same sort of generational like experiences pitching the same sorts of memoirs. And so I think this just creates a lot of headaches for people who are trying to figure out how to differentiate their story from someone else in their cohort. Yeah. And that's really what it is, right? Is, you know, what makes you different? What makes yeah. you unique? Why should I hear your story? Right, right. While still being similar enough to something that's already sold well. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. this is this year's educated. Right. You know, I, we've interviewed several agents on the premise. And I speak at a lot of writers conferences, as do you. And I try and sit in. And, you know, one of the things that you always hear from agents is talk about the comparable titles, other books, you know, within the last three to five years, three preferably, that are selling well. And I was talking to an agent and I said, you know, this book is similar to, and then I listed three popular books. And she said, well, if it's similar to those, why should we publish yours? <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> it's catch 22. Like, oh, it's meant to snare you. Yeah, right. That's really mean. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe, but true, you know, but 
I mean, agents themselves ask for the comps. So, I mean, to have that sort of response, it's uh, it's <laughs> just feels like they're asking for comps in very bad faith. Right, right, right. That's true. But I think she had a point. Like, what's different about yours? Yeah. Like, okay, it's in that vein, but why is yours special? And, and it's so hard as a writer myself, you know, it's to write is one thing, but to talk about the writing is another. Yes. One of the things that, you used to do, I don't know if you still do this, I believe maybe you've stopped, is give people critiques on query writing and their query letters. In fact, yeah, I just ran a new session or section of my query letter masterclass. So I am in the midst of editing about 100 queries in oh. four, four weeks. <laughs> my God. Wow. What are you doing wasting your time here with us? <laughs> you have shit to do. Um, wow, that's really a beautiful thing, though. That's very kind. Well, it, I'm getting paid for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But... I mean, it's nice to do it once in a while because it helps you see where writers are at, like their mm. mind space, what they think is important, the sorts of mistakes that they're making yeah um, and it it gives me it just keeps things real you know sure what do you think is the the number one mistake you're seeing right now in in queries this, and let's talk about you know debut authors unpublished authors looking for that first chance for fiction writers they often get stuck in the trap of trying to over explain the story um there can be a lot of focus on the theme or the message, the point you're trying to get across. And it can come off as kind of didactic or cliched. Mm. So the best approach is almost always to tell the story or have, uh, you know, it's the formula is pretty simple, actually. If we're talking about a narrative, this could be novel or memoir. Protagonist, the problem they're facing or the choice they're facing or the tension that's getting the story uh, that's putting the story in motion and then hopefully some sort of twist or um, an idea of the stakes or who's standing in their way and that's really all the query amounts to and you can get that knocked out in about 100 to 200 words Hmm. so most people just they go too far down the rabbit hole they include a lot of detail that's not necessary you need to show for a narrative cause effect going through that story description. And some people just throw in everything without, and yet, but they don't connect the dots for you. You don't mm-hmm. understand, <laughs> okay, this, this person has two best friends who were mentioned once each, but I have no idea what they're doing in the story. They're just kind of like window dressing. So you can't have window dressing in the query. Right, right. Well, and that's the whole thing. Like, if you can write a hook, I mean, ultimately, a hook should have all of those things in it as well, right? Yes. That um, first sentence. Yeah. There. Well, you know, you've actually just hit on yet another mistake. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much emphasis, I think, from agents about, you know, sell me your story in a sentence or hook me in a sentence or, you know, et cetera. And not all stories can be boiled down to like this really juicy one sentence or one one liner and the stories end up looking flat and ridiculous Mm. or they end up looking way too complex because the person is trying to wedge in everything and you have a sentence that you can barely understand Mm. so I don't like I mean I know where it's coming from 
but I don't like having those one-liners at the query opener because very few stories have that kind of high concept that really sings. Mm. That's nice. I like that perspective. Gives authors permission to not have to say it in one sentence, which is almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's bring it back to the business of publishing. You publish The Hot Sheet. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that and how it came to be. The Hot Sheet is my paid newsletter that's publishing industry analysis. And back when I used to work for Writer's Digest, which is, you know, today it's a magazine primarily, but it used to be much bigger than that. I always had this dream of doing something that were for the more serious professional author. For those who don't know Writer's Digest, it's very much for beginners, um, for people who probably haven't published a book yet. And so you just end up repeating the same stuff over and over and over and over again, and you get bored with yourself. Mm. So I'd long had this idea of doing something that would be for the business-oriented author. And I'm also an admirer of Publisher's Lunch, which has been around for the entirety of my career, practically. Yeah. yeah. And I love reading that newsletter, but it's for insiders. You know, a lot of it isn't terribly interesting and some of it's not comprehensible to your average author, even though I do recommend that authors you like sign up or at least use Publishers Marketplace, the, you know, the parent company's database to help find agents. So in any event, um, in 2015, I, myself and another journalist in the publishing industry decided to partner on this and see if we could, you know, see if we could make it work. And it mm -hmm. did work. Now it's mine. Uh, he, uh, we parted ways a few years ago. So now that it's, it's totally mine, but the publication's mission hasn't changed. It's, it's to help authors understand where the, what's happening in the business and what might affect their earnings in the future. Awesome. Awesome. It's almost like you've come full circle back to being the editor at your college paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I'm much more comfortable in, in this role than I am in, you know, let's write a story or a book role. Well, and I'm going to guess that you enjoy, like, the, the creative side of writing fiction, but in your heart, you're just a deeply curious person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then you also have, I think, for the the benefit of our listeners, you also have a free newsletter. And tell us about the free newsletter and why do you do both? So the free one, Electric Speed, I started about uh, 13 years ago. And, you know, it's been so long, I couldn't tell you what the impetus was other than I just felt like I needed to start building connections with the people that were encountering my blog, my website, my conference talks. Mm -hmm. I wanted some way to capture that. And I'm glad I had that thought because, you know, I've now been speaking and going to conferences and publishing blog posts for a decade. And so to have not started it then just means I, I wouldn't have been able to capture all of the value that I was producing. So the newsletter itself is pretty straightforward. It's uh, digital tools and resources, not just for writers, but for all sorts of creative people. Because I just love, personally, I love discovering new mm -hmm. tools. Yeah, and, yeah. and I found that I was, unlike uh, others in the writing and publishing community, you know, I was not precious about 
the smell of paper or using a certain <laughs> pen. Like I don't, I don't care. Uh, I'm, I, I work on my laptop and I want things that make me efficient and productive and things that are a delight to use. So that's what the newsletter focuses on. And, you know, it's wrapped in, in, in little bits of other content, like a, a personal note from me and, and contributions from readers. Where did you get the title, Electric Speed? It's a Marshall McLuhan quote, oh. um, which, I, which embarrassingly, I always forget the precise quote. But he talks about when you're pushed to the furthest limits of your potential, it's like working at electric speed. So it's, for me, it's, um, it kind of, it's meant to indicate I am melding together human possibility and digital possibility. Very cool. <laughs> I had a feeling it came from something very specific. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about your involvement with the Facing Project. And b before you do, um, as our listeners know, the premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival. My business partner, Marnie Friedman, by the way, no relation to, to Jane Friedman, different spelling, dear listeners, we co-founded the festival because we believe in the power of storytelling. The story has the power to bring people together. Story builds empathy. It increases our desire to help one another. So when I saw your involvement with The Facing Project, I thought, oh my gosh, this is so in line with our values. So I wanted to hear more about that. It's a national nonprofit that creates mm -hmm. a more understanding and empathetic world through stories that inspire mm -hmm. action. So tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved. So The Facing Project is the brainchild of two writers who uh, live and work in Indiana, where I'm originally from, hmm. and Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. Um, and I, gosh, I don't think I could tell you what initially prompted them to launch this organization, but essentially it started out by them going to specific communities, usually university communities, and working, collaborating with the community to put together personal stories on a very specific issue. Mm, um, very it, cool. And some of these are, it's very straightforward and warm fuzzy, and then there are others that are very controversial and visceral and create some controversy. So like I know there, there was one facing project at William and Mary, that was about uh, sexual assault. And it it really upset the apple cart there. Mm. <laughs> because there were people who were interested in these stories not being told. So those are the best stories are the ones that get us to think outside of our comfort zone, right? To push mm -hmm. us a little bit. Indeed, yes. So what the Facing Project does is they help they help people understand how you can gather these stories from people who aren't necessarily writers, how you can work with them to produce the best possible piece. And then they bring all of that work um, to completion in a final published anthology that is distributed to the community. And so JR and Kelsey have created this process and framework that is replicable. And so the Facing Project, it's expanded way beyond universities at this point. And so, you know, the organization funds itself because different communities will pay them for their time to help launch these projects. But it's since expanded significantly. I mean, there's there's a radio show 
now they're creating a press, which is one of the reasons I'm on the board to help them mm -hmm. make sure this press is doing its work properly. Um, and I am involved because I've known Kelsey Timmerman for more than a decade. I, I met him at a writer's conference uh, in Muncie, Indiana, and he had bugged me <laughs> for a number of years to join the board. <laughs> so finally, I agreed. You finally gave in. I don't know how you do all of the things you do. You do so many things. Well, it helps that uh, my husband was laid off from his publishing job in 2019, and he now works for me. Oh. So I... <laughs> <laughs> and how's that going? It's going very well because we started our relationship as co-workers in 2000. So mm. um, we were co-workers first, then got romantically involved, and now, now we have both. Now you're back. Yeah. <laughs> How many years have you been married? Uh, we've been married for three years, but we've been together for 12. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I was hoping that you could tell us something that no one would know about Jane, because there's a couple things. I'm going to lay some foundation here. I did a ton of research on you, and I was looking for those personal tidbits, and I didn't find a lot. I find that you appear to be a very private person. You give a ton. I know you have a big heart, clearly, or you wouldn't do all that you do. And you are, you're incredibly curious. I, I get that you love the publishing industry and you're everywhere, but yet there's so little about who is Jane Friedman. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want it to have anything to do with drinking because we'll talk about that next. But tell us something about Jane Friedman that no one would know. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> really? See, Chad warned you. So it's going to be hardball. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> she normally doesn't do this. I, I apologize, Jane. <laughs> She's not normally like this. <laughs> I, I uh, have held any number of weird service jobs. Mm. Um, now, this is mainly in my youth, but I delivered pizzas. I worked at the McDonald's drive-thru. Nice. I, I worked at the Cedar Point Amusement uh, Park, which is uh, in Sandusky, Ohio. Oh, please tell me you were Carney. <laughs> I, I actually, unfortunately, worked at the restaurants, but uh, I would have liked to have worked the rides. That would have been very cool. <laughs> and I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken. I worked as a hostess at a Jerry's, which is kind of like a, a Denny's, I suppose. Um, I worked uh, as a newspaper carrier, delivering newspapers door nice. to door. Um, I worked as database entry for a military publisher. This was while I was still in college, where I literally sat at a desk for eight hours a day and took, oh, I don't, I don't know if this happens anymore. But for veterans, uh, they would receive surveys that they would fill out that was exhaustive surveys about their military service. Um, and then they would send them back to this publisher. And then the publisher would use that to compile these like insane biography surveys of all of the military veterans associated with specific wars or ships or... I, Knowing nothing about the military, I can't be more specific. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I was exposed to so many heartbreaking mm. 
stories of veterans. Um, and you could tell that they felt like, oh my God, now is my chance for someone to record what I went through. Um, and the most, the, the most really just sad, heartbreaking one, uh, like series of surveys that I worked on was for the USS Indianapolis, which is the ship where, um, I think wasn't Jaws, um, the movie Jaws was somehow inspired by this. I think one of the characters is a veteran from the USS Indianapolis. Hmm. Anyway, it's the ship that sank and many of the people were eaten by sharks in, oh in this God. particular. Yeah. Uh, I think that was World War II, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, so that <laughs> I don't know if that's what you were looking for. but <laughs> Notice I went straight to work. Uh, you did. Made... <laughs> but it made me think of something. That it's really important when it comes to, you know, the idea of story and how it can build community and it changes us. You know, story doesn't just benefit the reader. It benefits the teller. Like being heard is really important. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's something I learned very early on. People's desire to be seen to for someone to bear witness. Yeah. That's right, which is why books will always and forever, and music too, be, you know, in whatever form it will be digested, it will always be, because it's who we are at our core. Pattern-seeking storytelling machines. That's right. That's all we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect segue. <laughs> so you contributed to a book called Drinking Diaries Anthology. And I read your story, um, Drinking as Genuine Vocation. And I had some thoughts on it. Well, first of all, I drink bourbon myself. What kind of bourbon do you drink, Jane? If I can get it, Buffalo Trace. Okay, I haven't heard of this. Ah, yes. I'm I'm more of a Basil Hayden kind of a gal. Okay, that's a good one. The price point is perfect. You can get it at Trader Joe's, folks. It's thirty four ninety nine. <laughs> this episode episode is brought to you by Basil Hayden. <laughs> so one of the reasons I drink is to shut down my brain because I'm always moving and doing, and I have this crazy amount of energy. And having a glass of wine or you know a, a bourbon, three rocks. I don't know about you. Are you straight? Are you rocks? Rocks. Okay. How many rocks? I fill the glass. Oh, you do? Wow. Okay. So some people add water, which I sometimes do. It's a pint glass, but. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. The size of the glass matters here. <laughs> I'm going to go with rocks glass. Yeah. Maybe. Yes. Yes. So, so this, you know, I have a, a drink just to kind of allow myself to like shut up, you know, and I got sort of the opposite from you. Like maybe the idea that drinking removes inhibitions and allows you to explore your shadow self, you know, to see things from a deeper self as opposed to the self you're supposed to be, that like societal mores say we, we should be. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah, so when I was in college, uh, and actually, no, it goes back to high school, I took a class called Shadow Literature. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if this was mentioned in the essay. Um, 
but it was examining books that show how our shadow self comes through sometimes for good sometimes for ill and the and the overall message of this class was if you don't pay attention and give your shadow self um if you don't bear witness <laughs> to your shadow self it will it can overtake you in a really terrible way so like some some of the books we read in this class was like jekyll and hyde or frankenstein um but there were others that were heart of darkness heart yeah there you go heart of darkness <laughs> um dorian gray um demian i think mm. i quote at the beginning of that essay perhaps you did yeah. yes so then in college I took another class. It was a, a capstone, a literature capstone that was examining the Dionysian Apollonian dichotomy, which is a mouthful. But it's essentially a very similar idea that you have, you know, you have order and um, power and authority, um, like the full strength of the sun shining on one side. And then on the other side, you kind of have chaos and drunkenness and... <laughs> <laughs> revelry and these two forces are always you know kind of trading off and and doing battle and but you don't live without one or the other and if but if you try it's there's usually a price to pay for mm -hmm. so i i feel like drinking for me especially and like not so much right now in my 40s but certainly in my 20s and 30s um, just because of the way, uh, just because of my childhood and some other early formative experiences, it was just really hard for me to admit to certain emotions or to certain, certain parts of myself. And the drinking was part of that shadow self integration. I mean, I don't mean to glor glorify drinking at all, but this was the vehicle for me mm. that helped, that helped open up some of the things that I needed to examine. Yeah. That's really well said. Very cool. We did. We just learned something very personal about Jane Friedman, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Before I let you go, I, I want to know, do you have any advice for our listeners who think they want to work in publishing? I mean, I always get advice for our authors, but for the, right, for the people who want to produce those books and go into the publishing world, the editors, the business-minded folks, what advice do you have for them? Well, I, I have encouragement. I think there's probably never been a better time to break into the industry. Um, historically, it's been very difficult to get a job in publishing because it's so New York centric and mm -hmm. there, you know, often connections play a really strong role. But since the pandemic and also just the diversity, equity and inclusion uh, movement, it's opened up publishers to hiring people from all across the country, of all backgrounds, having them work remotely. Some are even not requiring um, certain types of degrees or maybe even a college degree at all. They're looking at other equivalent forms of experience. So I just want to put that encouragement out there that if, you know, I, I think it's easier than when I was, was trying to get in. Um, that said, editorial jobs tend to be the hardest to secure and most people come in a side door, <laughs> like marketing and publicity, PR, et cetera. And, but I think, I, I think that work is just as creative and imaginative uh, as the editorial work. I would, for those who, you know, I, I would never go into a publishing in, uh, interview saying, I love to read, oh, I love books. 
Um, <laughs> your interviewer will be inwardly rolling their eyes. Um, it's They probably hear it so often they don't hold it against people anymore, but please don't say that. Um, <laughs> well, that's just assumed at this point. I right, think. exactly, yeah. Um, try to find the special strength or vision or perspective you have that you think is going to add something or if you have um, skills in marketing, publicity, tech, metadata, digital, you know, probably some of those skills are going to be very valuable to a publisher. So the practical skills, aside from reading, writing, and editing, are just as important. Absolutely. Yeah. Jane Friedman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You can learn more about Jane Friedman at janefriedman.com, that's F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, where you can get her newsletter, her free newsletter, Electric Speed, and subscribe to her paid newsletter, The Hot Sheet. Follow Jane on Twitter and Instagram at Jane Friedman. This has been another episode of The Premise. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us at thepremisepod.com and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, the San Diego Writers Festival is happening this October 8th in Coronado. It's live and in person, folks. We'll see you there. Until next week, thanks for listening. Say goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Hey folks, this is Jennifer, and as you know, The Premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers' Festival, which, by the way, is happening this October, October 8th, in fact, 2022. It's going Live to be, and in person. Yeah, live and in person. I'm really, really excited. We, um, we have so many exciting things happening, so many exciting speakers that are coming in from all over, and we want you to be there. So Coronado Public Library, the fourth annual San Diego Writers Festival. San Diego Writers Festival.com. You can subscribe to learn more about our programming and get on the list to win free books and all kinds of cool stuff happening. So San sure. Diego Writers Festival.com. <laughs>